Welcome back to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese history and culture through historical Chinese dramas. This is Kathy. And this is Karen. Today, we will discuss episode 25 of The Story of Ming Lan or Zhi Fo, Zhi Fo, Ying Shi Lu Fei Hong Shou. The podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain Chinese phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter, or else email us at karenandkathy at chasingdramas.com if you have any questions. For today's episode, we will do an episode recap, then discuss the history brought up during the episode, and finally, close with book differences. In the last episode, Ming Lan went back to the Sheng family home in Youyang. There, she met her cousin Pin Lan and got a glimpse at the terrible marriage that her other cousin Shu Lan is stuck in with the horrible Sun Xiucai. The Sheng family is trying to obtain a Heli or separation from the Sun family, but it's pretty tough. Sun Xiucai claims that the Sheng family has no grounds for separation, only a divorce. Karen explained the differences between a separation and a divorce in the last episode, so if you want to uh, refresh your memory, please listen to the previous episode. Sun Xiucai wants a prostitute to enter into the household and has bought her contract from the brothel. The conversations are at a stalemate. Ming Lan, though, has an idea. The DT, or the registration deed, is probably still at the brothel. With this registration deed in hand, the Sheng family will have leverage over Sun Xiucai. So Ming Lan, Pin Lan, and the young doctor He Hongwen rush to the brothel to try to bribe the madam of the brothel. They are successful only after paying an arm and a leg for it, and having He Hongwen promise to tend to her migraines. As for Gu Tingye's story, he's currently in the military and has had some successes. Okay, let's start off with a recap for episode 25. Ming Lan, Pin Lan, and He Hongwen rush back to the Sheng family manor. Things are getting out of hand as Sun Xiucai and his mother won't back down and it's actually getting kind of physical. Sheng Da Tai Tai, or Ming Lan's great aunt, and uh, the grandmother to Pin Lan and Shu Lan is currently out of ideas. Shu Lan and her mother are just sobbing in the background. It's not looking good for the ladies in the Sheng family. At this crucial juncture, Pin Lan rushes into the room and gives the uh, registration deed to her father. With this in hand, the Sheng family's fortune turns on a dime. The prostitute registration deed is displayed for all to see. Shulan's father reprimands Sun Xiucai for his actions. The scum of a man used Shulan's dowry to pay for his brothel visits. Sun Xiucai knew only to buy the contract for this prostitute, but not the registration deed. And with this deed in hand, the Sheng family now have evidence that Sun Xiucai wants a prostitute to enter the household and is willing to divorce his properly married wife for this woman. This is against law and propriety. As a scholar, Sun Xiucai has to adhere to uh, certain social norms. 
Shulan's father threatens to file a lawsuit against Sun Xiaotai, and one letter to the scholars in the capital about his fiasco will strip Sun Xiaotai of his uh, Xiaotai or his scholar title. Without this title, Sun Xiaotai will just be another regular common man. It's pretty evident that Sun Xiaotai did not tell his uh, family elders that the woman he wanted to bring into the family was a prostitute. That's why, upon seeing the registration deed, the uh, Sun family elders totally backed down. Sun Xiaotai is actually incredulous. He's like, uncles, we can't back down. In my head, my response is equally as incredulous. Like, what? How dare you think you have any grounds to demand anything right now? Sheng Tai firmly claims that a Sheng family daughter will not lower herself to be uh, sisters or in the same household as a prostitute. As the uh, ultimate compromise, Sheng uh, Tai says that if the couple will hurry or separate, the Sheng family will leave half of Shulan's dowry to the Sun family. With that, the Sun family elders agree, particularly Sun Xiaotai's mother, who's like, we are so out of money. And this woman, this, you know, prostitute potential uh, mistress wants nothing but the best. Sun Xiaotai is still wishy-washy, but you know what? With half the dowry, that's still over a thousand silver tails, which is a lot of money. Sun Xiaotai's mother does not want to work anymore. So uh, this should be enough to get by. Sun Xiaotai finally agrees to Heli. He demands for the dowry list first. When Chang Wu brings it out, so Chang Wu is Shulan's brother and tears it in half, Sun Xiaotai has the gall to say Yo Ru Siwen or so uncultured. That's kind of his go-to phrase. Right, his go-to phrase, which is so ironic because so uncultured is him. He is the definition of uncultured. At least, finally, Sun Xiaotai makes a print on the separation document, uh, putting his finger fingerprint on it, formalizing this whole separation. Shulan comes up to the table, and in a show of her absolute hatred of this marriage and of this man, she pricks her finger or uh, cuts her finger and prints her fingerprint in blood. This is a stain in her life that she paid dearly for and wants to be remembered in blood. You'd think that Sun Xiaotai would just leave, but no, he leaves these scathing words for Shulan. He dares to say, mm, you're dull and uninteresting. You're not a match for me. You're only fit for a lowly butcher. Remember to be more virtuous in your next marriage. I was beyond furious the first time I heard him say this. This is straight up the patriarchy or what have you that led to this scum of a human being and also a doting mother. But uh, man, I guess people like him weren't uncommon back in the day. Shulan, freed from all shackles, finally retaliates and spits at him and calls him out for what he is, an unfaithful womanizing boar. With that, 
The Sun family elders leave, and so do the despicable Sun Xiucai and his mother. That's the last we see of them in the show, and good riddance. However, let's give the two actors a round of applause for making us absolutely hate them in two short episodes. Later that night, Minglan's own grandmother, Grandma Sheng, reprimands Minglan for her recklessness today. Going to a brothel? What would people think of her if anybody found out? Minglan promises that the madam will not say anything, especially since He Hongwen promised to treat her headaches. Grandma Sheng informs Minglan that the tragedy of her cousin's marriage is a good lesson for her. Luckily, the Sun family didn't know about the registration deed and have a relatively low status. If Shulan married into an aristocratic family, the Sheng family would not have been able to help. They're just merchants and much lower in society than nobles or scholars. Shulan would have been stuck in the living hell uh, if she had married someone above her station. I think Grandma Sheng is also warning Milan that uh, if she, again, thinks about marrying Qi Hong, this might be her life. On the other hand, Grandma Sheng praises He Hongwen and his actions towards Milan. Grandma Sheng aptly, also for us as the audience, observes that Shulan was too weak and meek towards her ex-husband and family. She never knew how to stand up for herself. The Sheng family also believed that money could solve everything, and it was that fact that the Sun family was able to take advantage of. Grandma Sheng wishes for Milan's life to be smooth sailing, but Milan correctly points out that even a match such as Shulan and Sun Xiucai, which on paper seemed like a good match, required careful management. So she knows that no matter what she has in store for her life, it's not going to be smooth sailing. Grandma Sheng is pretty heartened to, to hear this. Another piece of marriage and relationship advice for all of us to hear, right? You can plan and have everything look good on paper, but the reality may not be uh, what it's like. So maybe the best matches are the ones where um, you have the, uh, the pe most peaceful relationship. At this point, a servant rushes into the room to announce that Sheng Da Tai Tai, so the uh, great aunt, is not looking good and is about to pass. Everyone rushes to her bedside. Ho Hong Wen's grandmother, who herself is a doctor, declares that unfortunately it is a lost cause. Sheng Da Tai Tai calls for someone, Sheng Shu. We find out that Sheng Shu is Sheng Da Tai Tai's eldest daughter who died young. With her dying breath, Sheng Da Tai Tai curses her long-dead husband, Sheng Huai Zhong, and vows to take vengeance in the afterlife. Kathy will talk about the story uh, later in uh, discussing the book differences. It is the middle of winter, and the Sheng family prepare for Grandma Sheng Da Tai Tai's funeral. Minglan sends a letter to her aunt to meet back in the capital. The funeral for Sheng Da Tai Tai is a grand affair, and we'll talk about this more later. But unfortunately, along the route of the uh, funeral procession, it is attacked by bandits. Minglan gets separated from the group as everyone flees, and as she's running away, a soldier on horseback kills the bandits chasing her and grabs her onto his horse. Who is the soldier? 
Ah,、uh, it is none other than Gu Tingye. What a coincidence! The rest of the Sheng family returned safely back to the manor, and they、uh, sent out a search party immediately to search for Minglan. However, Minglan is perfectly safe. Wu Tingye takes her to a small outside cottage or or stall for some hot water and wine. Can't really tell. She's surprised to see that he's joined the Imperial Army. She aptly deduced that he must have gotten on the wrong footing with his superiors. Otherwise, why is he here fighting bandits instead of you know out on the front lines? He's surprised at how quickly Minglan came to this conclusion. He claims that he didn't want to rely on anyone. Particularly his family, so he just wanted to make a name for himself. He wants to be his own master. Minglan openly admits that she admires this and wishes that she was free to live for herself. Gu Tingye, you know, sweetly insists that she can. Shi Tou, Gu Tingye's servant, comes back to report that the bandits have been taken care of, and Minglan can go back now. Gu Tingye gives her a、uh, sleeve arrow for protection, and she just rushes home. But of course, runs into another bandit. This scene is absolutely hilarious because it looks like both the、um, bandit and Minglan don't really know what they're doing. So they have kind of like a staring competition. The bandit is、uh, brandishing this large broadsword, and she's trembling as she tries to shoot the arrow. Minglan apparently shoots the bandit in the leg, and after another miss, the bandit flees. Minglan is like, "Oh, great! I'm amazing. I totally didn't know, didn't have training on how to use this、uh, sleeve arrow thing, but it worked." And <laughs> it's so funny. She tries to pick up the broadsword, but it's way too big, too heavy for her, and she just drops it and flees. Out from the shadows, who emerges? Why, it's Gu Tingye and Shi Tou. Gu Tingye was the one who actually shot the bandit in the leg. Minglan completely missed. Shi Tou questions Gu Tingye, "Why are we hiding in the shadows to protect Minglan?" In a callback to previous episodes, where I said Gu Tingye very much understands the difficulty of women, responds, "How would it look if a single unmarried woman returns with an outside man, especially wearing funeral clothes?" This is so counter to pretty much every other Chinese romance drama, historical drama. You know, you are supposed to be saved by the knight in shining armor and and brought back. But、uh, Gu Tingye is being thoughtful of what cultural norms would actually do to Minglan if she showed up with uh with him and Shi Tou in tow. Again, the fact that an unmarried woman can't be around um a a normal man. Uh, after being saved from bandits, that also speaks volumes about society at the time. Well, Milan returns back to the family, and everyone starts crying again. It's actually very heartwarming. Grandma Sheng is beside herself with joy. She decides that they must quickly return back to the capital,、um, as she believes that there must be or there will be unrest in the capital as well. So Grandma Sheng and Minglan head out shortly after. It's a whole retinue, but who is behind them? Why, Gu Tingye, his daughter Rongjie, and Shi Tou. He states that he has two reasons to head back to the capital: one, to protect the Sheng family; 
Two, to bring Rongjie back to the capital and receive a formal education. Rongjie is so cute. I actually really like this uh, little actress. She asks all these questions as to why they're out camping, why they're riding so slow. Uh, as you see them, like not staying at the outside little stall where the Sheng family are resting, they're just out with like a fire um, and just like sitting there. Shitou is beside himself, laughing at all the answers Gu Tingye gives. Gu Tingye says, "Oh, um, I don't have any money anymore. Oh, honey, my head hurts." <laughs> It's so cute. Rongjie is one smart cookie though, and accurately says, "Uh, Daddy, are we riding slow to protect the big sister ahead?" <laughs> Gu Tingye says, "Um, that's not a big sister. That's an auntie." <laughs> and Shuto's like, "Uh, okay." <laughs> the episode ends with the Sheng family going ahead, but there is a group of bandits waiting for them. Gu Tingye carrying his daughter. Walks straight up to them to request that they back down. When the bandits don't, Gu Tingye makes light work of them and pretty easily beats them up. It's a lovely scene because Shitou is in charge of holding Rongjie and turns her around. He has her recite a poem, and her father's just over there beating everybody up. Good for him. Because of Gu Tingye's actions. Here and probably along the route, the Sheng family returns safely and soundly back to the capital, and we'll see what happens in the next episode. This is exciting because I feel like we haven't had a whole lot of culture and history to discuss, and there's quite a bit to chat about、uh, today. First up is let's talk about Tianti, which describes the class of people that are,、uh, I guess, the lowest class of people in China, which. During this period or this episode is what the prostitute、um, is a member of. People in this class are akin to、uh, you could call slaves. They're generally servants. They're like the undesirables. If you're talking about an equivalent in、uh, the Indian caste、uh, system, in ancient China there are rules where people of this class are not allowed to marry "quote unquote" ordinary people. What's highly unfortunate about being in this class is that this designation is、uh, generational, meaning passed down from birth. You are not allowed to participate in imperial exams or become a government official or own property. That is because this class of people are themselves seen as property. People in this class are generally servants, slaves, or for women, prostitutes. Interestingly, in almost all of China's history, this type of classification existed up through the Qing Dynasty, but it did undergo heavy reform in the Song Dynasty, so where we are right now, where it was essentially abolished. During the Song Dynasty, these slaves were given more rights and viewed as humans rather than property. Owners were not to kill their servants or tattoo their faces, which signals that they've committed a crime. And were not to treat them as property for sale. There were actually a few examples during the Song Dynasty of、uh, government officials having their careers blow up for abusing or killing their servants or concubines that came from this designation or class. 
Overall, during the Song Dynasty, you could say there was upward mobility as this class of people were categorized as humans and more or less just as servants rather than slaves. This was unique in Chinese history as uh, neighboring kingdoms, even during this time period, retained the, uh, the jianji or like this, uh, this lower class designation. When the Mongols invaded China and destroyed the Song Dynasty, this distinction between the uh, regular and undesirable, or in Chinese it would be liangjianzhifen, was reintroduced to China. And as I said, all the way until the Qing Dynasty, where none other than Yongzheng, the emperor in uh, Empresses in the Palace, abolished all forms of this slave designation. Becoming a member of this designation was in very was a very uh, severe punishment, and there were examples of emperors when they wanted to punish their, I guess, political opponents. If they won, would actually just force their political opponents' wives or you know family members to become members of the designation, which means that they had nothing to do other than become prostitutes or you know slaves in the future. So this is a little bit of an anachronism in this drama. I'm sure it's because in the book, um, it wasn't set in the uh, in the Song Dynasty. So that's why we still had this type of conversation and this conflict. But in the Song Dynasty, this technically would not have been as big of an issue because um, a woman who is a prostitute would be able to marry um, a regular person. Whew. All right, that is it about Jianji. Next, let's talk about Zhangli, or the funeral. Shortly after Shu Lan is able to separate from her despicable husband, her grandmother passes away. This is the fourth funeral we've seen in the drama and the last major one, so we'll spend some time going through this and some of the customs here as we've skipped over the explanation, particularly when Gu Tingye's father died. There's actually a rather cool behind-the-scenes clip on YouTube where the cultural teacher for the drama describes various aspects of funeral ceremonies and funeral rites they've included in the drama. So I'm taking it directly from her and, of course, a few other books and articles I've researched on this topic. Funerals in China are important events, and in the Song Dynasty in particularly, they placed additional emphasis on the various rites and rituals for funerals. As this dynasty's scholars aligned themselves more closely with Confucius, they took the rituals from Confucius' teachings more seriously. One interesting thing I've read is that this dynasty actually shied away from having elaborate burials where one is buried with lots of jewels and gold. There's a lot to discuss on funeral-related rituals, so I'm only going to be scratching the surface here. We've talked about funerals already a few times in this podcast show, so hopefully this is at least something new. At a high level, men and women are to wear white and burlap clothes for funerals, which in Chinese is called pima xiao. There is a vigil held for the deceased where close family members are to fast for three days before sending the deceased to his or her final resting place. There are multiple other steps like washing the the, per, the deceased's uh, body and changing clothes and whatnot, but I, I thought it was too complicated, so I'm really just glossing over at a high level. 
In the drama, we mostly see the various processions of people heading to the burial place. Generally, the closest relatives are at the front of the procession. For Gu Tingye's father, we saw his eldest son at the front of the procession. This is also to reflect something called Wu Fu, which dictates various customs during the funeral period, such as what type of clothes you wear, food you eat, and places you rest. It essentially decrees that if you are very close to the deceased, such as you're a part of the immediate family, you have to do ABC. If you're a generation away or second cousins, for example, you do XYZ. In some of the reports or articles that I've read, if you are, for example, um, the son or brother of the deceased, you have to wear more elaborate funeral clothes. If you are another fool away, you wear less formal and it kind of goes be, goes on that direction. So I personally think that the drama was not as detailed into changing what each person wore based on his or her relation to the deceased. Uh, for the most part, the actors seem to wear similar clothing um, for the various funerals. And there might be slight differences, but I don't think they were as, um, I guess, distinct as some of the uh, historical um, paintings I saw were. People reading English translations to this drama might not have caught this, but Qi Hong and Gu Tingye did say that they are related by marriage. But Qi Hong and I think his father at one point did say, no, his mother actually at one point did say that 他们早已出五夫, which translates to that they are already outside of the wufu, which means that they aren't closely related and it's just uh, like a, formality. a formality. Right. One of the most important traditions for a funeral is actually what the son or daughter has to do after their parents pass away. This is called xiao, which is like a mourning period. This concept will pop up later in the drama for when other people pass away. During this period, the son or daughter of the deceased are not to drink alcohol, cut nails, trim beers, cut hair, spend the night with their husband or wife, amongst other things, and definitely not go to the brothels. It's, you're supposed to be like very chaste, and uh, it shows your filial piety for your parents. In the most severe cases, this is traditionally a period of three whole years, while I've read for other times, it could be down to three months. Generally, so we'll, in, later on in the drama, we'll see when uh, the emperor passes away, spoiler alert, you're in a qi, and that's pretty much where you're not supposed to be partying, you're not supposed to do anything crazy, you're supposed to be at home and be like abstinent and chaste, and that's what this mourning period is for. Lastly, the funeral procession in the drama that we see is actually some of the most impressive I've seen in any drama. The cultural teacher of the drama discusses adding minjin to various scenes, which acts as a flag to guide the deceased to the next life. We talked about this in episode two, I believe. There's also a huenbo, which is a chair with white cloth tied into an elaborate knot at the front. This is another way to give the departed a guidepost to lean on to the next life. This huenbo and minjin are carried by family members in front of, for example, the sheng grandma as they head to the burial spot. The cultural teacher also discussed that for Gu Tingye's father's procession, they also created a tombstone to be carried with them 
and also created a huasha, which are colorful cloths or perhaps tapestries covering the coffin and along the funeral procession to give it a more somber tone. I personally have not heard of what a huasha or fusha is before, and there's not a whole lot to tie this with um, the drama other than it's a great introduction to these words. Again, I do think the drama took some artistic license to creating the funeral processions because I don't think how they've created the squasha is um, what uh, I think like historically it should have been. But overall, I think the cultural um, teacher and the, the drama made really great um, artistic decisions to uh, create an end result that looks amazing for what uh, funerals look like during the Song Dynasty. And they also made differences for um, various tiers. Gu Tingyi's father was a marquis, so his funeral procession was much more elaborate than even the um, the grandma, um, the Sheng Da Tai Tai. All right, enough about funerals. Let's talk about what Rong Jie at the end of the episode when Gu Tingye is fighting off all the bandits to protect Minglan and company was reciting. She was reciting the famous Yueyang Lou Ji, which translates to the Memorial to Yueyang Tower. It is, I guess, a famous essay written in prose, if you will, uh, written by the renowned Song Dynasty Chancellor Fan Zhongyan in 1046 AD. Quite impressive. We know, like, literally the year and date. This chancellor went to visit his friend Teng Zijin, who rebuilt this tower and there created this essay. Let's talk about the author really quickly. Fan Zhongyan is one of the most famous Song Dynasty politicians and writers. Born in 989 AD in modern-day Suzhou and died 1052 AD, he rose through the ranks to become chancellor, where he helped the current emperor in the drama, Song Renzong, with various issues that arose during this emperor's reign, including the conflict to the west with the Xixia kingdom. And within Song Dynasty borders, Fan Zhongyan championed many reforms, including educational, agricultural, and military improvements. His texts, including this memorial to Yueyang Tower or Yueyang Ji, are still part of the Chinese literary repertoire today. As Americans, Kathy and I did not study this in school, but based on the comments from YouTube, Chinese students had to memorize this Huyang Lo Ji in school, which shows how important this is. <laughs> the most famous line in this text that uh, Rong Tier interestingly does not recite is Xian Tian Xiang Zhi Yo Er Yo Ho Tian Xiang Zhi Le Er Le. The rough translation or meaning of this phrase is that first worry about the troubles of Tian Xiang which in this case means your country or people. Then be happy when your country or people are happy. What Fan Zhongyan is trying to say that as government officials, the primary duty for us is to focus on your society's improvement and happiness. Only then can you enjoy happiness. From this line alone, you get a sense that Fan Zhongyan cared deeply about the Song Dynasty and its stability. He worked tirelessly to create reform and work with the emperor on enacting changes that, while not all of them worked for various reasons, made a lasting impact on Chinese culture. It does give you a sense of where his focus is, and I think that um, is important in um, when you're reflecting on who he is as a person. 
back when Gu Tingye was taking the imperial examinations, it was stated that he wanted to be like Fan Wenzhenggong, which is the official title for Fan Zhongyan. Funnily enough, in the drama Qing Pingye, or Serenade of Peaceful Joy, which I've referenced a few times now in this podcast show, Fan Zhongyan is portrayed by none other than the actor who portrays Sheng Hong, the father of Minglan. I think uh, the actor does a great job depicting Fan Zhongyan with his scholar aesthetic, but I won't lie, it was a little odd seeing uh, Sheng Hong being actually helpful rather than the flawed character we see him here uh, in this drama um, right now. I might say this again, but I feel like Qing Pingye though definitely a, not my favorite drama, was a great drama to introduce to you to uh, Song Dynasty characters that are constantly referenced in uh, the story of Milan. All right, that was a lot of history that we discussed today. Now let's go on to the book analysis. From a book perspective, I want to dive into the separation between Shulan and Sun Xiucai first. As I mentioned in the last episode, Minglan played no part in retrieving the registration deed from the brothel. This was all Sheng Da Tai Tai, or Minglan's great aunt. She was truly a remarkable woman, as I'll discuss shortly after, and the younger generation were not allowed to be in the hall, including Shulan herself. The book also provides more backstory as to why the Sheng family was so adamant about refusing to allow a prostitute into the household. This goes back to Sheng Da Tai Tai and her now deceased husband, Sheng Huaizhong. Sheng Huaizhong, the husband of the family, became besotted with a prostitute and uh, basically abandoned his family. He lavished gifts on her and spent a significant amount of money on brothels. The amount he spent was so much that the very manner the family is staying in now had to be sold off to pay off his debts. With no other choice, Sheng Da Tai Tai had to take her children away and live in relative poverty. During that time, Sheng Da Tai Tai's eldest daughter, Sheng Hong, or Sheng Shu, in the drama fell ill and died. In the book, it seemed like the prostitute that seduced Sheng Da Tai Tai's husband had a hand in causing the young girl's death. And the girl wasn't even 10 years old when she died. By her sheer willpower and some support from Grandma Sheng, Sheng Da Tai Tai was able to turn the family's fortune around. This took several years, if not decades, but Sheng Da Tai Tai was finally able to buy back the manor. Sheng Da Tai Tai's husband, that Sheng Huaizhong, died a destitute wreck. Sheng Da Tai Tai brings the story up when discussing the separation between the Sun family and the Sheng family uh, in, the, in the book, and it really provides some perspective as to why the Sheng family was so adamant about this case. In, in the drama, they don't really go into it, and this statement saying, oh, we just won't allow a prostitute in the family, I felt like didn't have as much of a punch, and that's why I want to reiterate it here. The final separation in the book is the same as in the drama. Shu Lan does spit in Sun Xiucai's face, much to everyone's satisfaction. The book, however, does go into more detail about the fates of these two characters. It turns out Sun Xiucai was actually the infertile one. The pregnant prostitute, 
she actually had a fling with another man, resulting in the pregnancy. Once Sun Xiutai received the money from the rest of the dowry, she steals that money and flees with her lover. Serves him right. Sun Xiutai remarries another widow, but is put in his place. His mother still dreams of riches for his son, but the last we see or hear of them is of the townsfolk mocking both of them for treating Shulan so poorly and Sun Xiutai's new wife mocking him for his lack of um, <clears throat> abilities. Shulan, on the other hand, remarries a kind man and actually has multiple children, two sets of twins, so two boys in one round and a girl and boy twin in another. Now, that's kind of a fairy tale ending for her, but hey, at least the author gave us that. Moving on, the book combines the two trips to Youyang into one, so Shulan's separation and the death of Sheng Da Taifei all happen in this one trip. We only get that one line in the show about Sheng Da Taifei's hatred towards her husband and the prostitute, but in the book, uh, that hatred is very much more felt by the rest of the family because uh, the rest of the family does know what happened. In the book, the bandits didn't come to attack the funeral procession, so Milan also wasn't saved by Gu Tingye. There's also a lot more involved with politics of the time in the book, and the drama dispenses with a lot of it, um, and we'll find out more in the next episode. Minglan and Grandma Sheng also do return to the capital shortly after. They will face, as in the drama, some interesting changes in the capital. Well, that is it for this episode of the story of Minglan or Zhifo, Zhifo, Ying Shi Lu Fei Hong Shou. As always, if you have any questions or comments or want to let us know what topics you'd like for us to cover, just reach out. Let us know. Otherwise, until next time.